This is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. So I never realized this, but apparently I walk funny. My students have pointed out that when I walk down the hall to our lab, they can tell it's me just by the sound of my feet hitting the floor. And much to my shock and surprise, recently a colleague told me that I have a swagger. So that's all fine, I suppose, except that recently my knees have really started hurting me. I went to the physical therapist and they said that my distinctive swagger is what is making my knees hurt. And now I have to learn a whole new way to walk. The learning's slow and at times painful, but ultimately it'll make me a better walker and I'll feel better. One could say that educational psychology has, to some degree, its own swagger due to some questionable research practices which can produce untrustworthy findings that really hurt the field and really hurt others' perceptions of the field. Educational psychology likely needs to go through the slow and at times painful process of learning new, open science methods for primary research. Doing so will improve the quality of secondary research too, like meta-analyses. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Erica Patal, who has written a great article on how questionable research practices and primary research can affect meta-analyses, but also how meta-analyses themselves can be subject to questionable research practices. She describes how adopting open science methods for both primary and secondary research is necessary for a more trustworthy science of educational psychology, perhaps even resulting in the field's findings regaining some well-earned swagger. Dr. Erica Patal is an Associate Professor of Education and Psychology in the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California. Her areas of expertise include the determinants and the development of motivation, education practices that support motivation and achievement, and research synthesis methods. For her work on these topics, she was a recipient of the 2018 American Psychological Association Richard Snow Award for Early Contributions and the 2015 American Educational Research Association Division C Outstanding Early Career Scholar Award. Today, we're talking about Dr. Erica Patal's 2021 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Implications of the Open Science Era for Educational Psychology Research Syntheses, which is part of a special issue of Educational Psychologist entitled Educational Psychology in the Open Science Era. This article was named Best Article of 2021 by Division 15 of the American Psychological Association. Erica, congratulations on the award and thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and talk with you, Jeff. Oh, good. Me too. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I, I'm a dork. I love open science. I love research syntheses. I love all this stuff. So I'm going to try to moderate myself here just a little bit. I do think, though, it might not be the case that everyone loves this stuff as much as I do. So maybe we should talk a little bit about research syntheses and meta-analyses more broadly first. So, you know, I'm seeing more and more of these published in the field over the last 20 years or so. I mean, wh why do you think that is? Why are people finding these meta-analyses so valuable? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think meta-analyses and research syntheses, even when they don't include meta-analyses, they're, they're becoming more and more popular. And this has been a trend for like, I don't know, the last 50 years since meta-analysis and research synthesis emerged. Mm -hmm. But it's because I mean, first, we just have a lot more research productivity as time has gone on, and it makes it really hard, right, for anyone, including experts, to know what's out there. So research syntheses really help with that. And then mm -hmm. I think over time, we've become more and more focused on making sure that research, especially in education, but in social science and other sciences more broadly, contribute to policy and improving people's lives. And that's probably best done with research syntheses that take stock of 
many studies, not just, you know, a couple or one. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'd say there's one other thing. I don't know if people (laughs) want to hear this, but I think one other reason might be because, you know, this technique is useful for those who don't want to interact with humans and do (laughs) human research, right? So let's say it might be me and a few other people I know. Sometimes, like, you know, I'd rather just do a research synthesis. (laughs) Well, you you know, you don't have to do an IRB. Yeah. Yeah. No consent forms. It sounds pretty great. So, uh, you know, I, I think you're right, right? There's so much research out there. There's so many primary studies. And it's really helpful to have some kind of synthesis that pulls it all together and says, okay, overall, here's what we think is happening, or, you know, kind of here's the findings writ large, et cetera. I mean, they're, they're really helpful, right? They're, they're really helpful, but they all depend upon primary research, right? They depend upon those studies that you mentioned, right? Where maybe there's one study and we don't want people making an inference about things from one study, but as the field grows and now there's 10, now there's 20, now there's 50, now there's a hundred, we need some way of synthesizing them, which is kind of what you're talking about. And in the open science community, there's been a lot of concern about questionable research practices in primary research. And we don't need to kind of get into all of those specifically, but you know, how do those things affect research syntheses and meta-analyses? Yeah. So, I mean, the short answer is they affect research syntheses the same, you know, it's just an extension really of how they affect the primary research themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about questionable research practices, so what are we talking about? We're not talking about just like blatant falsifying of data. Mm -hmm. That's not what we mean. That Mm -hmm. happens pretty rarely. And that's, you know, not the big concern. The big concern is things that researchers do that are kind of common, even acceptable, um, but they muddy the waters in terms of what we believe about what we know, right? Mm -hmm. So things like not reporting all the dependent measures that you may have measured in a in a research project because they weren't all significant or not mm-hmm. reporting non-significant findings or mm-hmm. selecting a certain subset of the data for possibly very good reasons. But when it's not transparent, we may have more trust than we should mm-hmm. um, in those mm-hmm. results, right? And it just sort of translates to, the same problem translates to research syntheses, except now, it's maybe even more misleading because now it's based on a hundred studies or, or, you know, actually typical meta-analyses don't have a hundred studies. They have more like 40 studies, 20 mm-hmm. to 40 studies, but that's still, you know, that makes people feel confident in the findings when we know that those practices have an impact and it can inflate effects in individual Mm -hmm. studies and Mm -hmm. then in the meta-analyses. That's really important to highlight, right? So let's imagine that there's some relationship and the true relationship that we could never know, but let's just pretend we can, is zero. There's just no relationship between these two things. Well, if we do a hundred studies, maybe 50 of them would show some kind of relationship that was small and 50 would show 
maybe no relationship. If there's publication bias, those 50 studies that show no relationship are not going to get published because people are like, oh, I didn't find anything. I didn't find a statistically significant relationship. I'm not going to even try to get this published. Or unfortunately, in journals and reviews, there's still this bias against statistically non-significant findings. And so maybe reviewers or editors are like, you know what, we're not going to publish those 50 that have no finding. And so all you're left with for a meta-analysis are these 50 studies that found quote unquote, something. And so what you're saying is that kind of questionable research practice and publication practice and dissemination bias can actually affect the meta-analysis because all the meta-analysis has to draw upon are those 50 studies that got selected and they're a biased sample. So is that kind of one of the problems of how it goes from primary research to secondary research? Yeah, absolutely. It, so it is not it's not that research syntheses don't know about that. They absolutely mm -hmm. do. There's entire, there's many <laughs> textbooks mm -hmm. <laughs> and papers written about publication bias and how to combat these things, as well as other questionable research practices. Mm -hmm. But it's not that easy to deal with them in research syntheses, even though we know about them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we try to find those unpublished findings, right? This is why, you know, listeners have undoubtedly have in their inbox at some point this month, they've gotten a request, right, mm -hmm. to contribute a study that maybe they didn't publish to a research synthesis. Mm -hmm. And we contact individuals. But honestly, as somebody who's done many research syntheses, the response rates on those are pretty low. And we know that there's much more research that has been conducted that goes unpublished, you know, sometimes because the researchers themselves choose not to publish it when it's not significant because they know that the name of the game is having significant findings and we don't really value replication so much in our publication mm -hmm. process, right? Mm -hmm. Like under 1% of studies in education are replications. So mm -hmm. we try as research synthesis to find those, but it's undoubtedly true that we are not successful at finding it. Yeah. And that, so that's, that's really important to, to highlight, right? So when people get those kind of requests, they should take them really seriously because, you know, it, it really does affect the meta-analysis and, you know, kind of how easy it is for meta-analyses to determine an appropriate effect size and whether or not there's something there or not. And it does sound like because of the way educational psychology publications and, you know, the scholarship dissemination process works right now, we don't have full transparency. We don't know all the studies that were attempted. We don't know all the work that was done. And so you've got to kind of go out and, you know, just kind of hope that people will be like, oh yeah, wait, I do have something to send to Erica. Hold on. Which doesn't sound like the, the best kind of process, which is why people want more open science. So, I mean, in terms of primary research, like when they say open science, I assume they're talking about, for example, pre-registering studies or having lists of studies. I mean, what would help meta-analysists do their work? Would pre-registration help or lists of studies? Like what would really benefit them? Yeah, pre-registration would be a big help, but there's always caveats, as you know. Um, open access to materials is a huge help to mm -hmm. meta-analysts. Mm -hmm. I think those two are the big categories of the, oh, and tr how could I forget? Transparent reporting in mm -hmm. <laughs> even on the published papers would be helpful because I think many of us as scientists are kind of taught to craft a report that is easy for the reader to understand mm -hmm. and follow. And sometimes that creates a linear sort of narrative of 
events not quite as they occur with some omissions. And mm. so I don't even think mm. we do it on purpose. We're trying to be helpful and we leave out stuff. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. pre-registration would be helpful if it were widely implemented because it it helps us with the search process. If people actually used it, <laughs> mm -hmm. we wouldn't have to engage in the elaborate set of strategies we use to try to find reports. You know, right mm -hmm. now I'll email listservs, I'll email individuals, I'll email deans, I email private research firms sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, sending out sometimes hundreds, sometimes even like thousands of emails to people to just to get research. And I rare, I don't even get that many responses, but this mm -hmm. is how we do it. And pre-registration would save a lot of time on that. Mm -hmm. um, but the caveat I mentioned was that right now we have we don't, we just don't have a standardized process for pre-registering. Mm -hmm. And so right now it's actually kind of just like the wild west. It's, mm -hmm. it's j just one more thing a research synthesist has to do to try to find studies. We can't get rid of all the other things right now because, you know, people are pre-registering in many different places. Right. Sometimes the formats are all set up to be adapted to every kind of research. And so right now it's very taxing to mm -hmm. deal with pre-registration, but in an ideal world, eventually it's going to be awesome. <sighs> Not even ideal in the future. <laughs> it's going to be we're, awesome. <laughs> we're going to make it happen. It's going to be great. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does sound like a lot of like sleuthing, you know, like you're out there, like, you know, beating the bushes, trying to find like one study, you know, I know there's three more studies out there that, that investigated this. I just have to find them. It does sound arduous for sure. And so you, you've articulated really well, and you go into more detail in the paper that I encourage people to read. You know, there's, there are all these questionable research practices in primary research. And as you said, many of them are not intentional. People aren't trying to be deceptive, but you know, there's some accepted practices that, you know, like p-hacking kind of things that aren't good. That can affect a meta-analysis. Obviously, the lack of transparency when it comes to what studies that were done and dissemination bias, that can affect the kinds of studies that you bring to a meta-analysis. And then the other kind of transparency you mentioned was this, like, sometimes we just don't report all the analyses or provide enough data or or whatever the case may be, all of those things can affect the kinds of studies and the number of studies that get into the meta-analysis. And it makes sense to me that that would affect their quality. And so, of course, open science, like pre-registration, et cetera, would help the quality of meta-analyses. The other piece of your article that I thought was just so important, and I think is probably one reason why it's gotten so much acclaim, is you also talk about how questionable research practices can affect meta-analyses and meta-analysists themselves. Right. Yeah. So, so I mean, how does that work? What what kinds? And again, this is not intentional. We're not suggesting that anyone's you know intentionally doing something wrong. But like, what are some questionable research practices when it comes to meta analysis itself? Yeah, I mean, research synthesists are researchers too. You know, mm -hmm. um, they make some of the same mistakes. Uh, mm -hmm. Not you know, usually not on purpose. Including me. We should all like. Nobody should think I am not making these same mistakes. Definitely am. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. So, I mean, transparency is not always awesome in research syntheses. I think my friend Josh Polanin, it wasn't that long ago that he reviewed recent meta-analyses in Psychological Bulletin and mm -hmm. um, several other journals that publish research syntheses. And, you know, people reported maybe 55% of criteria from Prisma, which is a set of criteria we used mm -hmm. for reporting mm -hmm. meta-analyses transparently. So, yep. you know, 
now. A little over half. <laughs> We're reporting it's not that awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, we could start ourselves by trying to, you know, be better at reporting all that. And the thing is, transparent reporting is hard, which is why open access is helpful, right? Like when yeah. it wasn't in the report, well, then you provided your materials and you provided your data, right? So that somebody mm -hmm. else can check and it reduces the pressure on that. So we should be engaging also as research synthesis and open access. You know, another challenge for research syntheses is they they quickly become outdated and mm -hmm. open access would help with that as well because it'd be easier for anyone to update them quickly. Mm -hmm. We sometimes, well, it's part of the process of research synthesis that it's iterative, but some of the problem can be that we shift our criteria for searching or coding or analysis. And part of that has to happen in a research synthesis. Like we don't have that much control over the data right, right. <laughs> like a primary researcher does, right? So we, and we don't know it all before we collect it. So things have to shift. But when you haven't made a plan or your plan wasn't that solid or like on paper and shared, you know, this is how bias enters into primary research and that's how bias enters into research syntheses too. So having pre-registration for research syntheses would also be good, but mm -hmm. you know, the caveat on a, that is that other researchers need to understand that those research synthesis pre-registrations are going to have to be amended over time mm -hmm. and it should not be seen as weird or like indicative of a poor meta-analysis that plans changed. I think that same should be true of primary research as well. Yeah. Um, it's like a really important thing to think about. Like this is, we can't be locked in to plans as mm -hmm. researchers with pre-registration. Yeah. It's tricky, right? I mean, there's, you, you want to make sure that you're not letting that bias kind of seep in, but at the same time, you're right. I mean, things happen in both primary and secondary research and you've got to be able to adjust. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine like pre-registering a meta-analysis, like what, what am I pre-registering? Am I pre-registering? I mean, obviously I'm pre-registering. I think, you know, I want to investigate how X relates to Y, whatever the case may be, but am I pre-registering like the search terms that I'm going to put yeah. into Psych Info? <laughs> am I, am I pre-registering like moderators and all those kind of things? I mean, like, can it get that detailed? Oh yes, it can. And it probably should, which okay. is why, you know, I think research synthesis should try to plan as much as they can in advance. Mm -hmm. And it means doing a lot of scoping, mm. you know, like a scoping review that is sort of preliminary, right? You, you haven't done everything yet, but you've tried out the searches and you've tried out even creating a coding guide and how it yeah. goes. Okay. And you have some sense of what the moderators are and a rationale for looking at them mm -hmm. so that you can pre-register before you fully start, like an official start. You know, I haven't actually figured out what the best timing is for that because, you know, often you're pretty far into scoping before you fully figure out the details of your meta-analysis. Mm -hmm. But I think as long as you pre-register before all the data is coded and definitely before you've started any analysis, then I think that's okay timing for a meta-analysis. I imagine mm -hmm. some people might disagree and tell me they think it should happen sooner, mm -hmm. but I think it's harder with a meta-analysis to do it much sooner. 
Yeah. So, but yeah, you're pre-registering all those things, your questions, your moderators, the type of analysis you're going to do, your criteria for inclusion, the places you're going to search, your search terms, all of it. Yeah, that makes sense. I really like the idea of doing a scoping review first, right? Because it's, it's, again, it's not going to be perfect. Like, I, I really think you made an important point about the need for flexibility. But a scoping review could kind of help you get a lay of the land. Like, okay, you know, seems like these are the, the search terms most commonly used. Seems like these are most of the moderators you might need to think about. But it, it does strike me, just as you said, that I, I could imagine doing the search getting your corpus of articles, beginning to read through them, and then looking at some ref lists and realizing like, oh gosh, we didn't think that a certain search term would be relevant, but it really is, and we need to include it. I just, I, I think at that point, I, I would be hard pressed to argue against allowing someone to amend or you know add a line to the pre-registration that says, you know what, we added the search term for these reasons, and it's really important, here's why. That seems fine to me. Is that the kind of flexibility that you're talking about? Absolutely. And in fact, I think it's more problematic to not make that amendment, right, than, yeah. than to make it. The fact that the, you know, research synthesis realized they may be missing an entire literature that is addressing the same question. And it's really important that we don't get locked into a research question that just uses certain terms or a certain theory. That would not be a good research synthesis if there mm -hmm. are many mm -hmm. literatures addressing the same question. So yeah, it's mm -hmm. absolutely critical. I would say, you know, it goes beyond that as well. Like the analyses mm -hmm. are really kind of hard to predict until you've coded all the data and even examined like all the frequencies because it's not like primary research where you have a question about some moderator and you're going to collect the data so that you can address it. No, sometimes we think a moderator can be examined and then we collect all the data and we're like, oh, wow, I thought that I would be able to look at gender as a moderator of this relationship and reality, like this is never reported in, in mm -hmm. these samples or, you know, whatever. The, the data just doesn't accommodate that comparison. <laughs> Yeah, and it does, it does seem like you can't know the answer to those questions of whether you have enough data for a moderator analysis or even, you know, again, a scoping review can help you identify potential moderators. But I imagine as you code the data, things might pop up that you just didn't think were there. And I, I think your point's well taken that to not have the flexibility to incorporate that would actually probably also be biasing the meta-analysis a little bit, right? Absolutely. Yes. My gender example is probably not as good as an example where you realize something is theoretically meaningful, but mm -hmm. you didn't realize until you got into the data. And it would be a real problem not to look at it, right? So you've got to be able to add that kind of thing. Yeah. It also strikes me, I mean, like heterogeneity is such an important issue. And, and sometimes you don't have a good sense of whether it's going to be there or how much of it or you know at what level or what kinds. So that seems like another area where we have to have the ability to, and again, I think transparency is a key word here, transparently and completely document, okay, here was our pre-registration. Here's what we found as we were coding. And this is why we have added this particular moderator analysis to the study. That seems okay to me. Is that something that happens? You know, I, I think it should. I think it should happen just the way you described. But right now, not that many people in education 
or psychology, I would say, are, are pre-registering meta-analyses. Mm. Certainly some mm. people are, and there's been a, not just my paper, but a couple papers written about the need to do this, but I don't think it's so common yet without mm. having any data on this. I'm saying this, by the way, but I'm... <laughs> well... <laughs> well. You know, I, I do think it's what's important is we're all learning, right? And we're all learning about better ways to do our work. And so even if you haven't pre-registered meta-analyses before, the fact that you've realized like, oh, this is something I should do and you're trying it. I mean, that's that's leadership. That's how the field changes. And so we're all, you know, I, I'm starting to pre-register studies and I didn't before. And, you know, I think those studies could be criticized for not being pre-registered and I just didn't know to do it or how to do it. I mean, we're all trying to get better at what we're doing. And it's also, it's difficult, right? So like registered reports are like the next step beyond pre-registration. And I think those are even rarer in primary research in education and certainly in secondary research. I mean, are, are there any outlets that would allow you to kind of, for those that don't know this term, uh, register report, you actually kind of propose the study to the journal. The proposal is kind of reviewed and revised. And if it's accepted, then the journal agrees to publish whatever is found. So that what makes it different than a pre-registration is that there's kind of a publication promise with it. I mean, is anybody doing registered reports for meta-analysis work? Yes, though I have to admit I'm blanking on like the one or two journals that are doing that. I think I yeah. put in my paper for readers who want to check what I said. That's good. <laughs> that's that's a good tenure. Go right to the paper. Everyone, stop what you're doing. Pause your podcast. Go to the internet. Yeah, there's just a couple that yeah. are doing that, but it would be useful. I mean, I think there's there's benefits and potential unintended consequences of registered reports for meta-analyses. Hmm. Like the benefit is, you know, it, it deals with many of the questionable practices that we're talking about, but also sometimes meta-analyses don't get published because reviewers feel like they either disagree with the findings, like, you know, these meta-analyses go to the experts. And if they don't confirm what the experts feel like is in their own research or their colleagues' um, research, sometimes yeah. they get rejected, right? People are like, you must have done something wrong. Mm. Uh, and I've seen that play out a little bit. And that, so that it would take care of that problem. The yeah. maybe the unintended consequence is that sometimes meta-analyses sound not important because they're like, we already know the answer. What is this going to contribute? Mm. And I'm wondering if that would play out more in a registered report situation. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky, right? So my initial reaction to the idea of some primary researcher in a field reviewing a registered report of meta-analysis in their field and going, you know what, we already know this, or, you know, I don't like where this is headed. That sounds kind of yucky, right? Like you should be cool with people doing the meta-analysis and the results are what they are and you can respond to it later if you want to. I don't think primary researchers' intuitions should guide whether a report for meta-analysis is accepted. But, you know, I understand that that's a threat out there. It just feels like meta-analyses are so much work. And if you're going to pre-register, it seems like it'd be nice if you could have a registered report option where some journal would say, yeah, this looks good, go with it, and then we'll publish what you find. That seems like a, a yeah. better investment of effort. Yeah, and I think that's ideal, you know, especially when... You know, meta-analyses are finding an effect that's less exciting mm -hmm. 
-hmm. than we expected it to be. Mm -hmm. When it's a registered report, it's being published anyway. That information is important for us to know. Yeah. And it gets back to the point that you make in the paper, which is if practitioners and policymakers are going to depend upon us, they have to find our work trustworthy. And that means we have to do the work and find the results and do the best we can to actually do good analyses and use good methods. Then the results are what they are, and we need to report them honestly and transparently. I think it would help if we had the kinds of open science methods that you're talking about for both primary research in education and for secondary research. And I know there's there's more of it happening, but it sounds like we need even more of it to be adopted. Yeah, we're still transitioning, especially mm-hmm. in education and ed psych. We're a little slow to come up to speed on open science relative to other fields that felt mm-hmm. more pressure, mm-hmm. like social psychology. <laughs> so... You know, we don't even yet know all the growing pains we're going to need to experience to do this, but Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be worth it as we try to do it. Totally agree. Totally agree. And your article does a really nice job of outlining, again, how the questionable research practices, which we're not saying people are doing intentionally, but, you know, they're things that are kind of still norms in the field, how those things can affect the primary research that then influence the secondary analysis and then also can affect secondary analyses themselves directly Um, again unintentionally and you know i know that we're all trying to do our best so i think people should really read your article to get a good sense whether they're doing primary research or secondary research of how to do it better so thanks for such a great article i appreciate it thank you so um you know as co-editor of educational psychologists i get a lot of questions about you know, kind of how can I write an article for the journal or do you have any tips or suggestions? And so I like to ask authors who have been successful in getting a manuscript published in our journal, do you have any tips or any lessons learned that you want to share with people who might want to try to also get published in the journal? I guess I would say that Educational Psychologist is a journal where we want to see emerging theories and people synthesizing our field. So first, pick something you're passionate about Mm -hmm. to write about. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, why my article was fun to write was that I got to spend a lot of time thinking about something I do a lot of, and I, you know, I don't know if this works for every article, but I think part of what people found appealing about it was Mm -hmm. not just all the tips that I provided about doing open science and how open science affects research syntheses and how to apply them to research syntheses themselves. But also I tried to talk about my personal experiences doing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. research syntheses and put in some anecdotes. And I don't know that that would be in every educational psychologist article, but I do have the sense that that was something that people liked, that they wanted Mm -hmm. the tips with yep. the humanity of the writer in, mm-hmm. included. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so pick something you're passionate about. You have some advice to give. You have some theory to synthesize and make sure your perspective is also present. So I, I really like that. You know, it's easy to get caught up in the formalities of academic writing, but voice has to come through. Perspective has to come through. I mean, when you're trying to push the field, whether it's via changing theory or changing methods, it's important to also communicate that passion and that perspective so that people can kind of integrate it. So I think that's really good advice. And I Thanks for sharing it. You do lots of other kinds of scholarship besides meta-analysis and besides thinking about open science. Anything else that you're working on right now that you're really excited about that you want to give us a little teaser for? 
Sure. I'm a, after we get off this call, even, I'm about to start working on processing and writing up the results of a national survey of teachers that we've recently done to get a sense of the extent to which they report using practices that support students' motivation in the classroom Mm. and how their use varies by lots of things we think might affect their use, like grade level they teach at, Mm -hmm. if they teach more or less students of color, Mm -hmm. what subject domain they are focused on. So I'm working on processing that right now, and I'm really excited to be able to share it because I feel like knowing which practices teachers at least think they're already using and which they're not using very much that support students' motivation will be really helpful for interventions Mm -hmm. that, you know, want to target motivation practices and help Mm -hmm. teachers support their students in the classroom in terms of their motivation. So look for that soon. That sounds great. I'm excited to read that. So that seems like a really great place to wrap up for today. So I encourage all our listeners to check out Erica's award-winning article in Educational Psychologist entitled Implications of the Open Science Era for Educational Psychology Research Syntheses, which is part of a 2021 special issue of Educational Psychologist on Educational Psychology in the Open Science Era. So Erica, thanks again so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me, Jeff.